the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What causes a person to hurt another person? And then we're joined by the authors of a new book called The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really good to have you with us as we are full-fledged into autumn right now, into fall. Autumn. Autumn, autumn. sounded so fancy, Brian. I, I like don't really that. know how to say that word. It's a silly word to me, but you are uh, your house is probably decorated in fall yep. festivities. Aubrey Sampson, how are you today on this Monday? I am excited for a new week, Brian. <laughs> I can't wait. God's mercies are new every day. I know I'm feeling a little tired on this Monday evening, and I'm trying to uh, pump myself up with self-talk and positive vibes. <laughs> I like I like the fact that off air you told us that you're feeling tired because you just had a yes. social weekend, and both of us are probably thinking the same thing. 20 years ago, like every weekend was a social weekend, but I now... know, isn't it funny? Now that we're old, and and my my introversion has like escalated in my old age. I've <laughs> always been an introvert, but like my inner introvert, she's like, "Pay attention to me. Don't be with people anymore. Go to a Leave hotel everybody. by yourself." Yes. This morning, uh, I was we... literally like, "Could I go on vacation by myself this weekend? Do I have a couple days away?" No, I don't. That's not no. realistic, Aubrey. But that's how I feel. Speaking of your introversion, uh, sometimes we have to bring conversations from off the air onto the air. <laughs> uh oh. And so I'm going to call you out because you were okay. speaking of your introversion around yes. the fact that your husband now gets up at the same time of you. And let's be honest, you spoke of it as somewhat annoyed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, because I said it to him, I feel like I can say it on air. You know, it's not necessarily talking behind his back, but my husband used to sleep in later than me. So I was the early riser. I would get up early and I would have a good hour to myself in the morning to read my Bible journal, read something that I'm reading, sit by the fire, very picturesque morning for someone like me. And like, I've earned this. Like I raised my children. They now <laughs> sleep in, this. you know what I mean? I built a cute little like reading room for myself. And suddenly my husband has gotten all inspired to develop these like tiny, he's calling them tiny habits. It's from a book in his life. And one of those is getting up early and starting the day fresh. And so I go downstairs and he's in my space and he's even <laughs> in my chair. And I was like, and then at one point he was just standing up kind of over me as I was trying to read. And I was like, babe, I can't do this. You can't be this close to me in the morning. You can't be standing over me in the morning. My introvert feels like you're just like in my space. And he's like, yes. thanks. <laughs> I mean, there's no good response when, the, a, when your it, partner in life is telling you basically like get out of my way. <laughs> it is it, it is hurtful. I, I'm yeah. Kevin on this one. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but that is funny because I would also kind of probably feel that I'd be like, OK, nope, my space. But you wouldn't you know, feel this that. Is, this is the love of your life. This is your soulmate. You're doing life together. And you're like, could you please like, get in the other room for a little I mean, while? I think, part of, I think that's 
you're doing life with someone all the time. You know what I mean? Like you're in ministry with them. You do jobs with them. You live with them. You've been married to them for 21 years. They are the love of your life, but like you need some alone time to recharge. It's true. It's true. Can uh, <sighs> one other point on this and we will move on. We discussed yeah. last week. Uh, I told you my aversion to people who call their spouse babe. And yes. you said, do I do that? And I said, I think you do. And you questioned it. You just did it. Okay, so I do it. See, I don't even yep. think about it. In the first yeah. three minutes st- of the show, you did it. I so. still think, I mean, though I don't want my husband to be around me in the morning, I still think your soul is cold for, <laughs> for not staying babe. <laughs> both, both of those are true statements. Uh, maybe we'll talk about this later in the show, but I have had a glorious weekend because my daughter is home and it is mm. just, Aubrey, we haven't done fun. anything crazy. We've done fun family stuff, but to have the whole the whole crew under the under the same roof again has just been a lot of fun. So fun. Uh, we're glad that you are with us on a Monday morning. Um, Aubrey, we've talked a lot about not just um, the abortion debate, but um, really about the cultural shifts, what's going on. And there were any number of things I could have grabbed today to kind of show this. Uh, but I saw this story and it's just more bears watching because – this might be a one-off or okay. this might be a new thing. Biden, President Biden's Department of Justice has indicted 11 pro-life activists for blocking access to an abortion clinic. Hmm. Uh, and then if you go on and read this article, the people who have been indicted or people who are supporting them say, listen, there's all these um, crisis pregnancy centers that have been vandalized by people we know who have vandalized them. Hmm. And nothing is being done to these people. There kind of seems to be this double standard. Uh, As you read this article about these 11 pro-life activists who have been uh, indicted or are being indicted, it's kind of interesting. A lot of them are old people. Some of them in their 20s, but a lot of them are in their 60s. And so people are like, hey, heads up. This is coming. This is the winds of uh, kind of the pushback is coming. Now, I would like to cross my fingers, knock on wood, pray a prayer that maybe this is, you know, a one-off, that they were told not to block this entrance and we're blocking this entrance. But a lot of people are saying, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a shot across the bow uh, mm. to people who are pushing back and you better know this is coming. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't totally surprise me that this is coming. I I unfortunately because it is coming so one-sided like that feels uh obviously obviously pretty dark and and uh, worrisome but i i would say the other thing that's interesting brian because it was mostly older people protesting i also wonder this is totally separate but it made me think are the winds of change moving in such a direction that like we're not going to see uh, younger generations, the next generations protesting in such a way, like even mm. if they're pro-life, are they going to have a different tactic? I know that's not the point of what you're saying, but that just struck me in the middle of this. I wonder if that's going to be a generational thing we you see do. as time changes as well. Yeah. The justice department indicted 11 activists who they said blocked access to a Tennessee abortion clinic saying they violated the face act with the face act. This was near Nashville. The FACE Act uh, prohibits demonstrators from blocking access to an abortion clinic. And I was telling you about the ages. Uh, They charged seven of the protesters with, quote, conspiracy against rights secured by the FACE Act. Mm. Here's the ages of the people. 73, 55, 58, 57, 24, 51, 56. And so 
I did find there's something in there too. It's something interesting, but um, yeah, I don't know what else to say except to say, I do believe the general cultural wins of the abortion debate, especially with the Biden administration is uh, going after anybody who would stop, who's looking to stop abortions versus uh, people who, because there's a lot of protests or counter protests, if you will, right, uh, going on in the other direction. Right. Uh, these charges also come weeks. It says here after the FBI raided the home of a Catholic pro-life activist in Pennsylvania, claiming that he assaulted a man outside an abortion clinic. Mm. Uh, so it's all of this. They could face 11 years in prison and a 200. And $50,000 fine because they blocked the clinic's entry doors and prevented a patient and an employee from entering. Uh, And then here's the last part that I will mention. It says, while President Biden's uh, Justice Department has aggressively prosecuted pro-life activists, it's made no arrests in at least 17 incidents of vandalism and arson against pro-life clinics committed Mm. by the radical abortion group called Jane's Revenge. So people, a Mm. lot of people are going double standard here. Right. And the question is, what do you do with that? I suspect that uh, keep fighting the good fight, I guess, and and know that this might be the winds of culture right now. It, you know, I mean, we probably don't have time to have a whole conversation about this. We'll have to revisit this. I do think there's a question. I mean, I, I absolutely that's like a one sided situation that cannot be so. My question is, like, let's step back from this altogether for pro-lifers out there, which I consider myself a pro-lifer. Is blocking the doors of a abortion clinic the right move? I think mm-hmm. this is a. I think I'm not saying that means. Therefore, we justify the Biden Department yep. decision. I just wonder if there's even an entirely other conversation about best practices right and protest. methods. Yeah, yeah, yeah good, yeah. Pro, good protest, which Absolutely. I don't think means violence, blocking doors on either side of the party. Like, right. like we need to rethink that culturally as well. But that's what's going on right now. You can find out more about that. Google it and you'll find more stories about the Biden Department of Justice and the abortion debate and where we are heading. And we are thrilled to be joined by two authors, George A. Wood and Britt Eaton, co-authors of a book called The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. We've actually been talking a little bit about trauma today. And so this is perfect timing we're so glad that you both are here, Britt and George. Thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks yeah. for having us. <laughs> um, Britt, I want to start with you because I love this title, Uncovery. And I, of course, <laughs> this begs a lot of questions. Why Uncovery instead of Recovery, which is the term that most of us are familiar with? Sure. So when we're looking at Christ-centered recovery programming, uh, we really haven't changed much in about the last hundred years, even when Alcoholics Anonymous was founded and these basic 12 steps that everybody knows when those things were founded, we haven't really deviated from the model much in those last hundred years. And the the effort that George and I had uh, moving forward after we met and decided we really needed to be doing something differently in the recovery space, we wanted people who would pick up the book not to just pick up another book on recovery because mm. there's plenty of stuff like that out there. There are plenty of programs, there are plenty of curriculum, there are plenty of books addressing this topic. What we really wanted to do was to invite uh, not only the church, but the rest of the world to start to look at recovery a little differently, not just through a Jesus-centered lens, but to look at it and say, you know what, we're not trying to recover an old, broken life that led us to struggle in the first place. We're actually going after a brand new one. And in Mm -hmm. order to go deeper and get to the root of that trauma that is causing us to struggle, 
we are going to have to not just do recovery. We're going to go ahead and uncover what's going on. And it's a lifelong journey of going deeper into the recovery space and inviting people, not only those who struggle, but those who love and lead them mm-hmm. into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so George, uh, what does that practically look like? How is this, you know, thinking in terms of a program, how does it look different uncovery versus recovery? Um, well, first, let me just start off by saying I wouldn't even say in the terms of a program, mm-hmm. I would say in terms of just life and not just people that are outwardly in recovery from addiction of alcohol or drugs, which is what we typically think of, but really discipleship and mm-hmm. discipleship as a whole, we, we see just as much failure in discipleship as we do in recovery. You know, people that come into a church and try to join a discipleship program and then walk away. And it's often because they they can't um, understand that their works of trying to put it all together doesn't take away from the fact that what you really need to do is discover who Christ called you to be before the foundations of this world. Yeah. Is this holy, perfect, and blameless individual right now where you are. Things yeah. have happened to you in your life which have caused you to go away from that, but you're already that. And so when we yeah. understand It's not something we have to obtain through our works, through um, a bunch of work on ourselves and all that. It's it's more about allowing the truth of who Christ called us to be before the foundations of the world to actually settle in. And then it's like it's 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 a whole different picture. It it Mm. changes um, the paradigm shifts. and, And I think in discipleship as a whole, we're talking about identity here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about the true authentic identity that Christ gave us, not the one that we think we should be living out because the world told us we should. Mm. Oh, it's so good. And uh, this is maybe an extension of what you were just saying, George, but Britt, how do you feel like the church's kind of theology around this stuff has been hurtful? And then let's also maybe talk positive, like how can the church get better? So one of the more interesting conversations that comes out of this book is that, you know, the church really many times doesn't know what to do with sin. And we don't know Mm. what to do with people when they relapse into old ways Mm. of behavior, old ways of thinking, acting, behaving as well. And so sometimes the conversations that we have in the church lead people to pretty much hide in plain sight. This is Mm. the reality of the situation. When we struggle, whether it's with something like an addiction to a substance like drugs or alcohol, alcohol, or when we struggle with our mental health, when we struggle with even things like thoughts about suicide or, you know, thoughts of self-harm, when we have these thoughts, it creates a problem for the church. If we are continually trying to perfect doctrine, if we are continually trying to say Jesus is enough and your faith should be enough, that should comes off very shaming because it's very possible to have Jesus and really, really have him in your heart and still struggle. So sometimes the conversations within the church when we're dealing with recovery, they think when people struggle that it's either a sin issue or a faith issue. Mm. And oftentimes it might might be a sin issue. It might be a faith issue, but more Mm -hmm. often than not, it could be a medical issue. It could be a community issue. There are so many more things that we as leaders need to pause, reflect, and ask ourselves, you know what? We can see what's going on in the surface, but let's go deeper. Let's ask these harder questions. And sometimes I'll be really honest, especially with some of the more legalistic structures that I was raised within, Mm. challenging any approaches, especially 
especially long-standing approaches and things like discipleship and recovery can be a very slippery slope. Yeah. yeah. A lot of power. And there's a lot of people yeah. who it would take a lot for them to admit that they had ever done anything yeah. wrong in leadership. Yeah. So it's a very carefully calibrated conversation that we are trying to offer to the world. We mm. very much want to challenge the church into a place of reform, but we do not do so by looking and pointing a finger at the church because Aubrey and Brian, we are the church. Yeah. Yeah. We can, yeah. would not say anything to the church that we wouldn't say straight to ourselves in yeah. the mirror. So there are some heavy challenge pieces in this book, really encouraging leaders to ask the father, you know, let's take a look at our recovery programming. What is working? Let's keep doing that. What's not working? And let's stop doing that mm. and then be brave and courageous enough to even pray and ask the father, you know, what more would you have us do? Mm. What yeah. more would you have us learn? And how can we as a community embrace trauma-informed ministry and care to help people who are struggling? This uh, is really the basis of the conversation. It's a challenge for the church, but it's really an invitation. And George and I believe it's a huge opportunity for what we believe will be revival going forward. The book, again, is called The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. And George, uh, Aubrey and I, our, our primary jobs, we are both pastors. And so we're in churches. We're wanting to see the church do this well. And it's often a thing that we as pastors feel completely unable or, or unqualified to do, to deal with these bigger traumas and stuff. So speak to the pastors out there, maybe a, a challenge, but also what does it look like if we're going to do this well? Maybe, you know, paint a picture for doing this well in the church. Okay. Um, doing something well doesn't always mean everything goes the way we wish it would. Mm. Doing yeah. something well often means just actually being present. And I think the biggest message, and I just, I was at a conference filled with pastors over the weekend and the message really is we have to get away from feeling like we need to be perfect and we have to somehow succeed at everything we do. Mm -hmm. The truth is Jesus called his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to join him for prayer. Mm. When he said that, we all know they couldn't have changed what was about to happen. He was about to be crucified, yet he wanted them there. Why? He was painting a picture of what we as pastors are called to do. We are to sit with those that are in pain, in trauma, mm. and can't do nothing about yeah. it. That shows, yeah. that shows love and compassion. When I can't fix your situation and I will be uncomfortable with you. And, and that's what so many pastors mm. are afraid of. Every, you know, Brian, and, and it's a great question, and I get it a lot, but pastors want the, the bullet, the magic bullet that makes it yeah. Right. So it's true. But it, it, there is, just isn't. And the yeah. truth is, it's like, there are, this is what I say, there's a ton of resources, no matter what denomination you are from. There is a ton of great information right now that you could you could get there's as far as like the AACC the American Association of Christian mm -hmm. Counselors they offered a mental health certification for free for pastors over the last few years there is all kinds of things that you can go through to get the basics of how to walk with people through situations that maybe you know nothing about but you don't have to be a counselor or a psychiatrist or a doctor mm. to actually help people. You have to have love and compassion and not afraid to walk with what Paul says we already have, which is every treasure in heaven, yeah. every yeah. spiritual 
gifting we've already been given. So walk with that, with the people that are there. The biggest thing as pastors, and I, I really, really hear me on this pastors. We got to get away from saying, I can't help you with that and pushing people off. Mm. I can, here's a verse, go pray this. No, Mm. sit with your people. Hear their problems. Hear what is happening in their life. Because the the response I'm getting from from the individuals that feel unloved by their pastors is that they didn't even want to hear what was happening. They Mm. just immediately were like, well, I'm not really qualified for this. Mm. Here's my phone number. Yeah. And I understand a lot of pastors are overworked and we have too many people, you know, for how how many pastors we have on staff and all of that. But the reality is the answer is sit with your people, Mm. hear their hearts, hear what is happening. And often, here's the beautiful thing, often that will do the healing. Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. People haven't been heard. They haven't been loved. That's trauma. Trauma is being alone in pain that happened to you and Mm. no one there to share it with you and no one there to explain it to you. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So if we have someone that's willing to sit with us, that right there is a huge first step in healing whatever's happening. It's good. It's oh, good. It's so good. George A. Wood and Britt Eaton are the co-authors of The Uncovery, Understanding the Power of Community to Heal Trauma. Be sure to grab a copy of that book for you and for your community today. Britt and George, it's been so fantastic having you. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you for having us. It's been thank awesome. Thank you. Aubrey. Uh, before we jump into this, uh, this thing we were looking at at Christianity today, I haven't told you a dad joke in a while. You want one? You haven't Are you ready? told me a dad joke in a while. I am so ready. This is a dumb, dumb joke. And okay. I told it to my kids and it was so dumb that I got them to laugh with it. Okay, nice. I like those ones. So are you prepared? You're usually an easy mark for me. I know. I usually am. Your delivery, okay. your delivery, uh, a lot is dependent on your delivery. That's right. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm ready. Here we go. Let's go. Aubrey, why do dinosaurs make bad pets? I'm already laughing. Why? Because they're dead. That's good. Yep. It's not bad, right? It's not bad. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. I'm going to have a list for you soon of them because I I found a Twitter account that's just, have you seen this one? No. It's also on TikTok. Uh, I think one of them might be a coach or a pastor local. I think it's a coach. But it's like three guys sitting on a dock with mugs of coffee, just telling Stop. each other really bad dad jokes. And their oh, deliveries are awesome. Hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. I got to find it's that. It's really fun. <laughs> it is social media putting being put to good use. So uh, I, I will grab we, some. We for celebrate you. that. That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, my kids hate my dad jokes. And I told them that one. And you could tell it took a second. And then they just started laughing. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna tell my kids that one. That's pretty good. I still think the fresh, your Fresh Prince one is still my favorite. Uh, will Smith in the snow or what was it? Yeah. You, how do you find Will Smith in a snowstorm? Yeah. Look for the Fresh Prince. Look for Prince. the Fresh Prince. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. That preaches. There you go. All right, Aubrey. Uh, so over at Christianity Today, I found this interesting interview with an education professor by the name of Kevin Gary. Uh, here's why I found it interesting. It's called You Should Be Bored in Church. You Should Be Bored in Church. I was oh, like, okay, okay, good. My congregation needs to read this. I'm ready. Uh, but <laughs> it's sending not this necess- around to everyone. Exactly. In your exactly. It's not necessarily, it doesn't start about church. It talks about 
how we've lost the ability to be bored hmm. culturally that we fill our time yeah, with everything true. and that boredom is actually like this really really bad thing that has to be fought against does that make sense what do you think about us culturally just mm-hmm. around the concept of boredom it's so funny i was just talking to my kids about this over the weekend our youngest son kept we were in the car for 30 minutes we were driving somewhere and my youngest son who's 10 kept saying i'm so bored i'm so bored i want to i want to bring can i bring my whatever device in the car yeah. and i was like no we're going to be in the car for 30 minutes together well, what, what am I supposed to do in the car? And I'm like, you can talk, <laughs> you can draw, you can, we can have a conversation. We can listen to music. We can, I just don't want to be bored in this whole theme of boredom. Well, my husband's grandfather used to always say only boring people get bored. And oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Right. Because the, cause the thought is if you're bored, you need to be sort of a creative enough person to, to use your imagination or come up with something mm. fun or um, but even that instinct is like filling in boredom with something, right? Is there value in just being bored for bored's sake? I don't know. I'm curious what this I'm curious what this author is gonna say. But I do think our culture is not good at being bored. And part of it is, I mean, and I you know, like pot calling the kettle black, like yeah. we have these phones in our hands, and so we can constantly be entertained, play an app, look at the news, follow up on our latest celebrity, uh, be entertained. There's just constant access in a way that there wasn't even in uh, for you and I a yeah. decade ago or two decades ago. One of his premises is that boredom, a constant boredom, means that you've lost the ability to think deeply about things, like hmm. to just ponder, right? Yeah. And and I think you're right. Our phones have destroyed this in us. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe past generations would have said television has That's destroyed true. this. Or, right. There's always something. Mm-hmm. But what do uh, – guilty is charged here. What do we do at any moment? It's what your son asked you. Can I have my device? Why? Because I'll play the dumbest game on my phone in the world rather yeah. than just sit and look out the window and right. think about life. Right. Uh, but he then spins it to the church. He says – I'm often bored in church, and he talks about his Catholic upbringing, but he said, obviously, different churches are different. I went to one church service that felt like an Avengers movie experience. They <laughs> I want to go in, to that church. There you go. They put in a lot of work to make sure it wasn't boring, and then the yeah. author or the interview asked, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe we should be bored in church. Uh, and he said church services can be part of a boredom avoidance scheme. Let's try really entertaining with our music. And he says, I do think that does us a disservice because we're guiding people to steer clear of boredom rather than engage in it. And he goes on to talk about liturgy and the importance almost. See, this is such a fine line because he's almost talking about the value of boredom within our services. But yet none of us would actually and I don't think he's suggesting this would craft boredom into our services. Yeah. when I read this, I would almost want to pull out the word boredom and insert the word space and insert yeah. the word time for reflection, like reflection. I, yeah, I think he's being a little uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's being a little tedious about this, like no, no church. I'm sorry. No church is going to make boredom. No church service is going to make boredom their value. Like. No church team is going to sit around and be like, how can we make the gospel the most compelling for the people who are walking into church for the first time 
or the people who've been Christians for 30 years. Let's give them time to be bored because that's a value for us. I, I think like this is one of those things where I'm like, is it wrong that we have really powerful music? Well, no, like, I don't know. I think this is a church model. This is a church model conversation. And what he's saying is he doesn't like the attractional church. And instead, it should be a different type of church. I will always say God uses both and both have value. And there are some things wrong with one model, some things wrong with another. But I also don't think liturgy is boring. I also don't think thoughtfulness is boring. I actually think that's really beautiful and meaningful. And a lot of people are finding their way to uh, these services surrounded with ancient practices, you know, a lot of evangelical people are finding that for the very first time, something that the Catholic folks and the Anglican folks have had a handle on for a lot longer than us. And so I, 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 I don't like the way he's, I don't like the way he's posturing this. I think I would maybe use the word as I think about churches. Uh, what I think is fair, a fair critique is to say, especially a lot of us non-denominational churches, younger church or whatever, we overstimulate people. Yeah. We don't, we don't, or we over-entertain people or mm-hmm. try to, like, there's not this value in like, we're going to sit in this. We're going to, and I think liturgy causes that. And I don't think either of us would say that's a bad thing, but I think to this guy's point, we might be just kind of playing into a little bit of what the problem might be. But can then... I push back in a way you pushed back on something last week? Like, yes, I, I do. don't know any churches that are overstimulating people. Like, even the churches I know that are, quote unquote, I hope I can say this on the radio, the sexy churches that have professional musicians and, a, you know, world-class speakers, they're not doing like... I don't know, like they're they're not doing like a Broadway style show. I get I'm that. Not, I, I get I'm it. not sure that this is happening in a lot of churches in America. Like maybe a Sometimes, percentage, but like yeah, I, I, I agree. Don't, I don't know. I, I think this is stereotype. I, okay, value uh, that could be true. I I think you might be right. The places where I feel this, and obviously as pastors, we don't go to a lot of churches. But uh, <laughs> when I've been true. to churches, or I've been to conferences, or I've been this and that. I often feel this when music is being played and people might just look at me and go, you're not a musician. Like you don't get yeah. it. But when lights start going crazy yeah. and when, when it feels like a concert, I start to yeah. go, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like I'm confused. Oh really? Okay. I think I, I, I think I like that. Maybe that's the okay. difference. I, I tend to go, Ooh, this is cool. You know, maybe yeah. because it's so different than my, my general, like Sunday morning, we have such a pared down, awesome worship team, but more pared down. Maybe it's just like the newness is exciting for me. Yeah. I told this, I, I messed up our worship guy a little bit because I told Uh-oh. him, I think if I were searching for a church, I might be the point in my life where I went to one that was just heavy on hymns. It might even you literally have a hymnal. I did. Oh no. He's like, I'm going to lose my job. I got to get more hymns in there. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting to him that we should all do. I just was being honest. I think this is where I'm at in my mm. life. Like I think I would. Yeah. And so the big conference of this net, uh, does it do it to me? The value of boredom. I wonder. I wonder if there is a value. I'm going to think of this next, not in the middle of a church service, but next time I look at my phone and I'm playing some. Yeah, I really think that's good. Game. I mean, there I, is there is a value to, like you said, space, reflection, deep thinking, not being yes. constantly entertained. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a teammate here on AM 1160s, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, also the host of Pathway to Victory, which airs every weekday morning here on AM 1160 at 8.30 a.m. His name is Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers, how are you doing today? 
Doing well. Good to be back with you guys. Oh, it's wonderful to have have you. you. And and we are excited to talk to you about your new book called 18 Minutes with Jesus. Let's just start with the title of your new book. Tell us a little bit more about the title and the content of your new book, 18 Minutes with Jesus. Well, I want to assure your listeners, I have not had a near-death experience, gone to heaven and visited with Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Not what this book is about. Um, I... uh, I'm sure your audience uh, is familiar with the TED Talks. You know, they're highly popular right Mm now. A TED Talk is a brief talk uh, by an expert on a topic of great interest, and it can't be longer than 18 minutes. And I began thinking one day, what if Jesus were to come back and give a TED Talk? Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Love that. And then it hit me, he's already given us his TED Talk. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) You can read the Sermon on the Mount in 18 minutes. And yet, in this brief sermon, Jesus touches on all the things we care about, your money, your sex life, your prayer life, how to deal with enemies, and your eternal destiny. So mm-hmm. this book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, is really a fresh look at the 2,000-year-old Sermon on the Mount that is more applicable today, perhaps, than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Oh, I absolutely love that. What do you think some misconceptions are about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think uh, there are several misconceptions. One is it's a checklist of things you have to do to get into heaven, and nobody wants a checklist. (laughs) But I think a lot of people have probably fallen into what I fell into for many years. I I hate to admit this, but I went more than 40 years without ever preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. I uh, felt like I was taught in seminary that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't work in today's world, that this Hmm. is a conversation for the kingdom of God, for heaven. And I accepted that, so I didn't bother to read much of it. I mean, I'm in the here and now, not in the hereafter. But (laughs) I didn't begin to look at it. It didn't make sense from that perspective. Jesus said, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Well, who's going to be slapping whom in heaven? That doesn't make sense. (laughs) Pray for your enemies. Well, if evil has been vanquished in heaven, why would we have any enemies? Hmm. And I came to understand Jesus' words were not for the hereafter. They're for the here and now. It's how to live life to the fullest. And the simple premise I have in the book is those who model the attitudes, the actions, the affections of Jesus will have unshakable joy in this life and unending happiness in the next life. Mm, Let's talk about that joy, because uh, there are people going through really hard times right now, difficult and painful circumstances. So practically speaking, how do people access that joy-filled life that you're talking about? Well, you know, Jesus starts out his TED Talk, if you will, with a promise. In fact, eight promises about the blessings of those who live the way Jesus prescribes us to live. It's radical righteousness that he's talking about. And he said, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall see God. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What Jesus is saying is, this life is not going to be filled with all sunshine and roses and cotton candy. There are going to be difficulties in this world. He was very honest about that. Mm. But he said, you can be blessed even in spite of those trials. That word blessed, makarios in Greek, Sometimes it's translated happy, happier those who do such and such. But I don't think that captures the word. Happiness is a superficial emotion that depends upon happenings. When he talks about blessed, I think he's saying joyful. 
Joy is that quiet assurance that God is in control and no matter what is happening. You know, I think the residents of Florida probably weren't real happy about Hurricane Ian, mm. but Christians there yeah, could be right. joyful, having that assurance that God is still in control. That's right. Mm, so good. Dr. Jeffress, one of the things that you write about is really the power of persistent and passionate prayer. Can you unpack that for our listeners? Yeah, you know, Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like these religious hypocrites over to my left, the Pharisees. <laughs> you know, they think they're going to be heard by God for their many words or their mm -hmm. repetitious words. He said, when you pray, pray simply like this. And he gives us a model for praying. We call it the Lord's Prayer. That was never meant as a mantra to be recited. In fact, there's mm -hmm. no history anywhere else in the Bible that it was ever prayed. It's a model for how to pray. And, uh, you know, it's okay to pray for selfish things, Jesus said. Pray for your daily provisions. Pray for protection on the freeway. Pray for the things uh, that concern you. But also pray for God's will to be done and for God's glory to be exalted. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis says about prayer. I quote in this book. He said, when we pray, we ought to pray for what's really in our hearts, not what we think should be in our hearts. Mm. Uh, you know, God, be honest in your prayers. And yeah. I think that's one of the most practical chapters in this book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, about how to have open, honest conversation with the one person in the universe who loves you the most. Yeah. That's great. I, I, I want to think about that. How do we know when we're having open, open and honest conversation with God in prayer? Like, I, I struggle with that, right? Like, you kind of have these rote prayers and, you know, <laughs> I don't want God to know this about me. How do you know when you're having what you're describing there? You know, uh, <laughs> a lot of us suffer in our prayers from blessitis, you know, <laughs> and we don't know what the heck we're saying, but it's just, you know, yes. good. and you know, I, I have several tips about how to pray. Honestly, first of all, of vocalize or even write out your prayers. I used to think that was mechanical, hmm. but just sitting at my computer and typing out my prayer required me to be more precise in my praying. And uh, I have terrible ADD. I get distracted when I pray. If I simply think out my prayers, I get distracted. And if you don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. writing out your prayers, at least vocalize your prayers. You'll yeah. find it will help you stay focused. And also keep a prayer journal. Uh, I've kept a prayer journal for decades of things I've prayed for. And sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says no. Uh, as I look back over the decades, sometimes I'm more thankful for the no answers. They would have been a disaster if I had known what mm. I know now. But, you know, I think we need to remind people there's no blanket guarantee in the Bible that God will answer your every request. First John 5, 14 mm -hmm. says this is the confidence we have that if we ask anything according to his will. God's will is not a barrier mm -hmm. to keep good things out of our life. It's to keep evil things mm -hmm. from Mm, that's good. Amen. That's good. Jesus covers so many. I'm, I'm just thinking through the Sermon on the Mount: marriage, finances, provision, judging. I mean, there lie like there is so much in the Sermon on the Mount. What love actually looks like, loving our enemies. Was there anything you've studied the Bible for a long time? But was there anything kind of going back through the Sermon on the Mount that you were like, "Oh, that is kind of a new aha moment mm -hmm. for me"? Did anything surprise you? You know, I have talked for years what the Bible teaches about the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation. 
And yet, you know, 60% of evangelicals now believe there's more than one way to have another than mm-hmm. faith in Jesus Christ. And the argument people always made to me, Robert, if if you're right, and it's not me, it's Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But if that's true, they say, that means there are billions of people that are going to go to hell. How could so many people be wrong? And yet, mm-hmm. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with straight talk about your eternal destiny. And he said, narrow is the way that leads to mm-hmm. heaven. And mm-hmm. few are those who find that way. Mm-hmm. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Jesus said the population of heaven is going to be relatively small compared to the population of hell. And so we shouldn't hesitate. We don't relish the thought that heaven is going to be thinly populated. It ought to be a motivation for us to share that message of Christ with as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Amen. Again, the book is 18 Minutes with Jesus. You can pick that up wherever it is you get books. And uh, as a reminder, you can hear Dr. Jeffress each weekday morning here on AM 1160 on Pathway to Victory every weekday morning at 8.30 a.m. here on AM 1160. Dr. Jeffress, it's always wonderful to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Great to be with you all. Thanks for having me. I was scrolling through Instagram as I do, and something caught my attention. There was a giant post that said, I heart hot youth pastors. And it was a sticker. It was obviously like stuck to the back of a computer or something. I couldn't, I couldn't tell what, but I was like, what is this? I heart hot youth pastors. This is weird and kind of inappropriate. But then I found out that essentially a 35 year old youth pastor at Fairview Baptist Church in uh, Greer, South Carolina had passed this sticker out to his youth group. And there were a group of moms on Facebook saying, this is horrible. What is going on here? And uh, then I started to see this story everywhere, Brian, this thing. Began I did too. To, this, yeah, this thing blew up. You and I were both youth pastors. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's a, there, I think there are some obvious problems with this, but let's just, let's start big and then go small. What in the world? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, what yeah, in the world? So, so reading the article about it, he, uh, the youth pastor put out, he sent an email to everybody and talking about how it was a joke. And I was trying to poke fun at the I love hot mom culture, which apparently is a culture. I don't know. I didn't know that was a culture either. Yeah. He said, in hindsight, the joke was a very poor taste and a mistake on my part. I apologize. So you want to give him a little bit of credit. Yeah. But the need for an apology, here's what I want to say about this. Baked within the apology is the problem that he would be like, I don't see, I didn't realize this was an issue. I thought it was a funny joke. Right. Youth ministry world is really strange, and that's a problem Uh, within the evangelical world. I can't speak to other worlds, but within the evangelical world, because oftentimes the youth pastor creates their own little kingdom. Yeah. And uh, too often, again, painting with a broad brush, too often there's like this, the youth pastor is going to walk this line of I'm part student, part Mm -hmm. like adult. I'm younger than your parents. I'm going to be a little edgy. And I think that's bad. Like that's the part, like if I thought, oh, this is a 20 something youth pastor, a mistake. But when I saw 35, I went, this is 
grooming. I mean, this is in this is sexual abuse. Like this is like it, yes. you know, all of my everything raised all the flags were raised for me. It's, something about 35 years old like he should know better. But you're right. There is that weird funky line in youth ministry where you do you are your part youth part adult. There are often getting away from just the dumb sticker because I do agree yeah. with you. This, this speaks. Here's a problem that we've spoken a lot about the over sexualization of our kids. Yes. High school, junior high. Yes. For a youth pastor mm-hmm. to play into that mm-hmm. is at best is at best unwise and playing into the problem. Like right. you said, is at worst grooming. And yeah, it's like terrible. There's terrible. stuff going on. They talk about in here where this youth pastor or other youth pastors also like overshare yeah. with high school students. That happens all the time. And it seems to have happened in this youth ministry where, you know, oh, you know, I struggled with pornography in high school or I struggled with it. And you're like, no. high school kids can't do this. I do get worried the older I get. And I probably uh, did some of this on un- un- unknowingly as a yeah, youth pastor. Like, I want yeah. the kids to like me. I want sure. this and that. I'm sure I did too. Yeah. But now that I've got students, here's what I want for my youth pastor, for the my kids, is to have somebody in youth ministry, not even a pastor, just somebody to look up to who goes, that's an adult who acts like an adult, mm-hmm. who takes an interest in my kids' mm-hmm. spiritual maturity, mm-hmm. isn't trying to be their friend, isn't right. trying to be cool, right. isn't trying to be... Because sometimes these youth ministries feel somewhat cultish, to be honest with yeah. you. And it's like this... We talk about how 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 churches really struggle with celebrity cult of personality. I think it's worse in the youth ministry world often, this cult of personality. And then you add the sexualization into it, social media, getting on Snapchat with kids or this or that. It is dangerous. Like pastors need to be really, really careful, even in the hiring process. And I agree. I agree. I look back, I I'll say this, Aubrey. I look back at to say who were the most important mentors to me when I yeah. was in high school? Yeah. It was not like some 25-year-old cool. Like it was like That's true it wasn't. A 50-year-old guy yeah. who had his own in a business and had his own family and a healthy mm-hmm. marriage mm-hmm. who was like, "Hey, I want to try to help you understand mm-hmm. life." Or you know, my youth pastor at the time, he was probably in his late 20s, I would guess. Mm-hmm. And could have been like this, but instead he was just a normal guy who had a marriage and young kids yeah, and was like, I yeah. want to build into you. Like, that's what our youth ministers need to be. This thing is just weird. And I think I'm more concerned that the 35-year-old youth pastor was like, it was like George Costanza in Seinfeld, right? Is it wrong? <laughs> Should I not have done that? Like, somebody printed these and said, you know what would be a funny deal? Right. We'll pass to give these out our- to all these students. That's worries me more I than agree. like There's no even the sticker itself. So that There's that no is problematic. Okay, so this is uh, you know I've said before I don't love commenting on other churches when I don't go there and I'm not a part of it. But I do want to say that there are the children's pastor and address the address the concern. He posted something and it's it. Tell me what your thoughts are about this. He said. We see and hear your concerns and affirm the matter has been taken seriously. I cannot comment on the accountability actions with Corey. That's the name of the youth pastor because it is a personnel that cannot be discussed publicly. 
I will confirm the leadership and Corey understand the severity of the incident and have addressed it with him. He is meeting with the leaders to discuss the mistake he made and that it was in very poor taste. I will confirm that this has been dealt with as a serious matter with Corey privately, according to our personnel manual guidelines. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't that. I don't like that. that. Uh-uh. No, this has that become a public shady, situation. Shady to me. Yeah. So it's one thing. I, if he's saying we've dealt with this personally, as in inside the church, but, right. but we've been really open with all the parents, right. I'm okay with that. Like, I don't need to know what they did. That's but if true. you have a high school student in that group and they're like, well, we have a manual and we've dealt like that, I'm like, see ya, I'm out of here. Like, no, this is not okay. Like, the parents need to be made very aware as to what the steps were that yes. even allows this person. Let me yes. make one more comment. We're reading one article here about this. Yeah. This is also what bothers me because this article is written very much from like a church is bad kind of kind of statement. And it said this article ends with want to protect your children, get them out of churches like these and let them visit a library where a drag queen reads stories to your kids. The people you oh. should be concerned about are in churches. No, it can be both. It can be the both. people. Yeah. The people you should be concerned about are the ones who are over-sexualizing your children, whether it's a drag queen or whether it's a weirdo youth pastor. A weird youth Get them out of all of those places is what I would say. We don't have to choose one or the other. We can go for health and go, nope, both of those are bad. Both of those are not okay for our kids. Yeah, if you're a youth pastor out there, do better than this. Like, Don't don't try to be the cool guy or cool girl that everybody likes. Be the mentor that people respect and who are pointing people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's going to have the long-lasting impact you're looking for, actually. And that's what our students actually need. I mean, the yes. end of the day, bottom line, that's what our students actually need. It's the end of the show, and we want to leave you with something challenging to think about today. Okay, my friend, uh, her name is Jessie Crookshank. She's a pastor and a neuroscientist, Brian. Whoa. So I, I get, she's my friend that I'm intimidated to talk to. You know what I mean? Like anytime yes, ne- yes. neuroscience in your title, like you are smarter than me, but she ri- writes a lot about discipleship and church planting and neuroscience and discipleship. Really, really interesting. Again, her name is Jesse Crookshank, but she posted something yesterday. I came home from church and I read it and I thought it was so interesting. She said, when I was younger, My church taught me that God was a God who rejected us Mm. and Jesus had to make it better. Mm -hmm. These days, I believe in a God who is persistently and unapologetically moving towards us, demonstrated by Jesus. And then Mm. she said, it took a lot of therapy to unlearn and relearn this. And Mm. I... I feel like she put her finger on something that I remember learning. So, I mean, I, I I hope it's okay for me to say this. I can remember hearing John Piper say, God has a gun pointed at your head and Jesus stepped in and took the bullet. And the whole concept is that Jesus died for God's anger problem rather than for our problem of sin. Mm. And I think it is, I, I understand some of that atonement theory, but I can't totally wrap my mind around 
God is against you and Jesus is for you because it also splits the Trinity in a way that's not theologically correct. I agree. I agree with that. And I do think there's wrath at sin, but not, I mean, it's like Jesus standing with us against our sin, not God against us. Like this, Mm -hmm. this whole God Mm -hmm. against us theology, I, I don't, I, I cannot, it does not sit well with me. And what's the very, very famous sermon uh, uh, sinners, yeah, sinners in the in hands, the hands of, an of an angry God. God. Yeah, Jonathan yeah. Edwards. Yeah. I, I, my first thought when I read this was, like you said, it it splits the Trinity in a weird way. But but even with that as well, I just think this is where little little variations of theology or like get you off a path that I think gets you in dangerous things. Because here is the deal: we and, and you said this, we are sinners. God mm-hmm. is holy, mm-hmm. and because of that sin problem, we are facing judgment. Like, I think we would all, you and I would agree on that. But right. it's like, it, it, it paints a picture of God, like, almost embracing that, as in, like, this makes me happy, and Jesus going, like, dad, 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 like, don't do it that, does. right? It does. It makes it as, like Jesus is like, oh, God, calm down just a little bit. I'll exactly. Be, like, it's weird. It's weird. Anyway, go ahead. As opposed to, we have a sin problem. Uh, God is a holy God mm-hmm. apart from God. We are right. Like the wages of sin is death, but yes. then the, it's God who offered that free gift in Jesus yes. Christ. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus yes. Christ, uh, our Lord. It's God who made those steps. And so, yep. you know, I, I do think that this is where, when, when we take the theology just a little bit off, it just heads into bad places because, yeah. I don't think that God is just wrathful and I'm going to, I'm going to get you because you are a sinner and Jesus riding in on the proverbial white horse going, I got this. Instead, I think God said, you know what? Out of my great love for you, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, uh, that it's the free gift of God. Like, I think because these things are true, uh, we really, and it also does a weird thing to the Old Testament, right? Like, um, if if this is only about Jesus stepping in and going, God, I got this, I'm going to mm-hmm. save them. What happens before Jesus? Like, God is still right. merciful and graceful. Yes, right. In Even the in Old the sacrificial Testament. system, like that's right. I mean, I, that's and, right. you know, that's so that's so foreign to us. But at the end of the day, God still that was God's initiative. Yeah. So that God could dwell with his people. And I think we we just we frame our theology in such a way that it's like because God hated the world, God did these things instead of because God loved the world. And we frame it as if like Jesus died to make God love us, not because God loved us. And I just think that nuance is so important. And you're right. Like it, we can get a skewed in the opposite direction where we sort of um, diminish the reality of our sin. Right. And we don't ever want to do that. Like we do need to understand what greatest salvation we have in Jesus, but the initiation has always been God's Yeah, and the free gift of grace and forgiveness and salvation has always been God's like God went to the cross for us. Yeah. And, and so I, I do think it's interesting to think about how do we, how do we, um, correct our distorted images of God. I think that's something the Holy Spirit is constantly doing in God's children. But then also I wonder what it means for us as we think about other people. Like, cause I, I do think this is something I've struggled with. Like the, I've told you about the little Puritan that lives in my head. Like, if <laughs> yes. I, you know, if I think someone has a quote unquote 
sinful lifestyle or what have you, I I might be willing to be like, God loves that person. God loves that person. But, oh, you know what I mean? And so I'll keep a distance as if I'm God somehow that isn't, I don't think it's theologically sound either. And so I, I appreciate for Jesse Cruikshank to say, these days I believe in a God who is persistently and unapology, unapologetically moving towards us in Jesus, mm-hmm. then we ought to do the same for other people is ultimately what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think where people get this wrong is like either God's angry or God doesn't care about sin. And like that's mm. where the debate and reality is what we're trying to say here is that uh, sin is an affront to a holy God that requires judgment, that requires yeah. punishment. Yeah. Uh, but that it is God who then initiated the salvation. It's yep. not yep. uh, another God. It's 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 God the Father who initiated this. Again, I go back to the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he yeah. sent or gave his only son. Yeah. And, and when, when we remove God from that, it gets the, – the theology gets weird. So – Absolutely, mm-hmm. our sin needed to be atoned for. Yes. Absolutely, we could do nothing in ourselves and we are deserving of judgment and death. Absolutely. But it is God who then did something about it. And yeah. this sort of theology of Jesus stepping in for a vengeful and angry God, I think, paints God in a picture that he was like, Nope, I'm not doing anything about this. You're all done. And like, I I think it gets us into weird places. It does. And it's like, it's as if one part of, again, we're splitting the Trinity here. Like as if one part of God is for us while the other is against us. And then the Holy Spirit is like hanging out somewhere. I I don't know. I, I, I think it is so important to, to frame this for our own souls and for other people properly, that it is because of God's great love for us that Jesus died to deal with our sin problem and ultimately it's a gift of grace that we can receive mm-hmm. and we can we can celebrate that we can unlearn that we can ask the holy spirit to help us unlearn that and keep revisiting that good news you know as long as we live on this earth until we see jesus face to face well we will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. for Brian Fromm I'm Aubrey Sampson and you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160 hope for your life Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.